0: righty, so you asked for the Grand Canyon. And so I like to make puns, which my wife does not always appreciate. So Grand Canyon, the whole truth. Nothing but the truth. Nothing but the truth. So here is Johnny Wilmot experiencing the Grand Canyon. (laughs) OK, so you have two geologists standing on the rim of the Grand Canyon. One of them is a secular guy, the one on the left. The one on the right is a creationist. And he says, secular guy, a lot of time and a little water, question mark. And the creationist says, a lot of water and a little time, exclamation point. So that is the crux of the difference. So. They both have the same evidence. They both can look at the same rocks, the same fossils at the Grand Canyon, but depending upon what their world view is, what lenses they use to interpret the same information, they'll come up with different conclusions. So the fellow on the left has man's theories, which are changing all the time, and the fellow on the right has the Bible, which is our unchanging truth our history remember the Bible is a history book God was the eyewitness he gave us the history of what he did it's not a science textbook and that's good because science textbooks are always changing as we learn more keep needing new editions But the science topics the Bible touches upon are correct and true and useful. So the strata is the name of this outline. And we'll start with the formation, three evolutionary uniformitarian ideas on how the Grand Canyon formed. Well, the problem that they have to solve is this thing called the Kaibab Upwarp. At the east end of the Grand Canyon, there is this region there that is of high elevation. It's a big ridge, and I f- f- uh, filled it in with red to make the point that this is a region that was pushed up from up thrusting from e- earthquake activity below it. And so, when you look at a cross section view of the upwarp, you see that there are these multiple layers and they are not broken, they're not fractured, they are not shifted, The, the layers are continuous. They were bent, but not broken. And so this tells you that these had to be very, very soggy, wet layers when the earthquake activity occurred, causing them to be warped, bent, but not broken. Very important point. So all these supposed millions of years that you see the numbers there are meaningless. Because in that time frame, those rocks would have dried out and cracked. Subsequent layers. You see what I'm saying? They all had to be there at the same time. Equally soggy. To bend like that. So that's the problem they have to get around, is this upwarp it's literally a barrier for the evolutionary thinking. So they have three different theories that they've come up with. One is is that the upwarp was extremely slow and occurred at exactly the same rate that the Colorado River eroded downward. It had to be precisely synchronized. Second thought is that. There's a river running in one direction, and I'm going to show you numbers, uh, maps, diagrams. And this river was sw- stolen by another river that eroded backward and then took it and diverted it. We'll, I'll show you stuff. And the third one was that the upwarp acted like a dam, and water built up behind that dam, and then finally breached it and started eroding down through it. OK, so we'll take, we'll go look through each of these. So there's the upwarp. That's the problem that the evolutionists have to deal with. So let's take a look at the synchronized uplift and erosion. Okay, so there's the barrier. So here's the idea that this lifting up of the Colorado Plateau and that upwarp was at exactly the same rate as the river eroding this way, okay? Synchronized, perfectly synchronized, erosion with the uplift rising plateau, okay? That's that one. Well, what's the likelihood of that happening? Such precise synchronization over millions of years mm-hmm. about zero, right? Number two, the river piracy hypothesis, in other words stealing again, they have to deal with this upwarp here. All right. So what they say in this theory is that this ancestral upper Colorado River came down from what we call Utah today, came down from the north, went on to the southeast, and went on to flow in what we today call the Rio Grande from New Mexico on. So you see there that continual thing coming down from the edge of the map on the north from Utah, down to Arizona, going to the southeast and on down. Okay, so that's the supposed ancestral Colorado River. Okay, supposed. All right, then you see there's this other river, stream, whatever you want to call it, that supposedly eroded backwards. Okay, let's show you that again. Eroding backwards. Now think about this. As it erodes backwards, it has to keep eroding a higher and higher elevation. Okay, so how does that keep eroding from higher and higher elevation, starting further and further back? Okay. Well, if the source of the water was at the very apex of the upwarp, I could say, okay, maybe. But it also has to erode the backside of the upwarp, going downhill the other direction. How is that going to happen? And then it steals the ancestral Upper Colorado River so that it no longer goes to the southeast, but now to the west, like this. This is the piracy, the stealing of the river. Okay, pretty crazy. Like we've said in other settings, you have to have a great imagination to be an evolutionist. Okay, so that's what they're saying. Now, if you notice then, let me go back. Okay, so notice what happens on the upper map the Colorado I mean the Rockies thrust upward, and so now the Rio Grande assumes its current flow and there's a reversal of the direction, which now forms the little Colorado River going to the west instead of to the southeast. It's a cute story. Okay. Well, okay, so here's the map showing the Little Colorado River coming from this direction, meeting the Colorado there. So here's the Colorado, here's the Little Colorado, and then the junction is there. So instead of coming down this way, like so, this got reversed with the upthrust of the Rockies and now goes that way. Okay? This is a photograph of the actual site. So that's the Colorado coming down, and here's the little Colorado, barely visible. You see a tiny bit of it right there coming from here. It's out of sight, peaks, and then over here is where it joins, behind that ridge. Okay, so that's where the actual junction would be, but it's on the other side of that rock. You can't see it. Okay, but taking an aerial view, here's the junction. Notice the turquoise color of the uh, Little Colorado. In 1995, four, ninety-four, we did we rafted from Lee's Ferry down to Phantom Ranch. It was a week-long trip. And one of the things we did is we stopped here. They had us reverse, take off our life vests, reverse, and put them on our bottom, and then walk upstream and then float down the little Colorado River with the life rasp padding our bottom. It was fun. <laughs> All right. Third one breached dam hypothesis. So, again, here is where the plateau, the Kaibab upwarp is. So somehow that water has to get over that ridge, the upward. So the breached dam hypothesis says that it acted like a dam and collected rainwater. So here you see the Colorado Plateau uh, in that more gray-blue color, and it's going to magnify here like so. And then you're going to see water collect from the rains the circles where the upwarp is, the water builds up, then goes over it and starts draining and cutting through and cutting and making the Grand Canyon behind the upwarp. That's the breached dam hypothesis. Okay, there are some creationists who, who agree with that, as well as some of the evolutionists. Uh, but they disagree about the time frame as always. Well, one of the things that none of these hypotheses can explain is the existence of these four very large side canyons. None of them explain that. All right. So you've seen this verse before, professing to be wise, they became fools. Okay, in other words, they're not tuning into the truth from scripture. They're ignoring uh, the flood. So let's take a look at the flood context. Okay, Genesis gives us phenomenal detail. Three chapters about the flood. So much space in Genesis on this one event that was uh, 371 days long. So God obviously thought this was very important. Okay, part of it is also confirmed in Psalm, where it says, The waters stood above the mountains, but at your rebuke the waters fled. At The sound of your thunder they took to flight. They flowed down over the mountains and down into the valleys. So here, taking the information given to us in Genesis is a nice, concise way of uh, visualizing the sequence of phases of the flood. So there you see the first 40 days, 150, 371, and that this was the flooding stage where the waters were beginning to appear, to rise, and finally reach the peak. And then the retreating stage is where then Erosion takes place in very broad, wide, we're talking hundreds, thousands of miles, broad, wide sheets, something like this, where as the continents are coming up and the ocean basins are being pushed down, then the water is coming off in these big, broad sheets, flattening stuff, uh, very, very wide, uh, long distances, followed by that last phase of channelized erosion forming narrow, deep cuts. For example, here at Oak Creek Canyon, uh, where Sedona is located. So here you see part of the Colorado Plateau, very broad, uplifted, uh, relatively, relatively flat area. And this particular area is quite flat. This is taken directly from over the Grand Canyon looking northeast. Well, Oak Creek Canyon is at the southern edge of part of the southern edge of that plateau. So you see the plateau going to the north. Those are the San Francisco peaks, which is a volcanic eruption which interrupted the flatness of the plateau. And then this channelized erosion here as the water came streaming off the plateau, eroding the southern edge especially here at Oak Creek Canyon. Well, the same kind of channelized erosion occurred in other places in the world, such as on the California coast at Monterey, forming this very deep canyon that now is under water. It's a submarine canyon, but at the time that it formed, as the water was coming off the continent, it was still above water level because the oceans were just beginning to fill up hadn't filled up yet. Is that clear? Is that clear?
1: So that the, the Colorado plateau that you showed the photo of just a little bit ago, was that where the lake was that built up that created the Grand Canyon?
0: That's what one theory is. That's not what actually happened. Oh. That's one of those three theories.
1: Oh I thought the third
0: one was nope. Those were just the three theories. I haven't told you how, how Grand Canyon has happened yet. This would be from the channelized erosion towards the end of the flood process. As the Grand Canyon will be, but I'll talk about that much more specifically. First the sheet erosion, then the channelized erosion. Well, as the waters were flowing off, they were filling up the oceans.
1: That's real. Yes, okay. Thank you.
0: Well, not only here at Monterey, California, but also uh, on the Norwegian coast, these phenomenal fjords are also a result of channelized erosion of the part we can see above water level and the part below water level. Same thing. The oceans were not yet filled, and this channelized erosion was making these what they call fjords, we would call canyons, but the underwater part of one of these is called Andoya Canyon, okay? Like it happened at Monterey and many other places. This happened all sorts of places around the world. I'm just giving you two examples for time's sake. Okay, what about the actual evidence? Okay, so back to that phase one, sheet erosion. And we're back to the Colorado Plateau and we're looking from west to east, from west to east. This is this is uh, southern Utah and northern Arizona. So you're looking going looking east. So the Grand Canyon itself would be to to the right. Well, actually, what did I do with this? It's it's here, and then as you go north further through Utah, heading to the left, to the north. So this was sheet erosion going to the east and northeast, taking off these various layers that, when they were first laid down, were actually over the Grand Canyon itself. So there's some 16,000 feet of stuff that was over the Grand Canyon before the sheet erosion occurred. Okay, before the sheet erosion occurred. About 16,000 feet of stuff. All of these layers were extending much further south. Okay, we have several pieces of evidence for this. One is the distribution of the dumping of boulders as the water was was losing speed and not being able to carry uh, the heavier stuff as the water slowed down, the heavier stuff kept being deposited, and as the water further slowed down, then smaller and smaller stuff was being deposited. Okay, that's one of the pieces that we know um, for the sheet erosion going to the east, and so these are the layers that, of sediment that were laid down uh, before the erosion occurred. And so you see Bryce Canyon there. Now we're looking in the opposite direction. We're looking from east to west. So north is to the right, south is to the left. And so all of these layers did extend all the way over above the Grand Canyon, but got washed away to the east. Okay. So there you see the layers that were above the Grand Canyon. And as you look further to the north, you see the steps. That's why this is called the Grand Escalante. Grand Escalante. It's beautiful stuff. And then this is Uh, The last set of cliffs before the Grand Canyon are called Vermilion Cliffs, and those are in Arizona. And then way up, you see the blue up there, okay, the Pariah Plateau. So up there, that's more in Utah. Okay, so uh, this is again looking to the northeast from the eastern end of the Grand Canyon. How flat that is, that Colorado Plateau, how it got just sheet eroded off as it was going to the east. Well, we still have some remnants of those higher layers that are close to the Grand Canyon. Those three circled areas I'm going to show you in turn. We'll start with the one at the bottom. OK, this is called Red Butte, Red Butte. And if you drive on that road that goes straight north from Williams to Grand Canyon Village, you, this, is, this photo is taken from that road. It's just right there off the road. So these are layers that were still above the Grand Canyon. and At the very top, that is some lava. So there was some volcanic activity, and and that lava protected this part from being eroded. Then at the eastern end of the Grand Canyon, you see Cedar Butte, same thing. Layers there that were once upon a time everywhere, as you can see in those very distant mountains. Or I shouldn't say mountains, but cliffs, basically. And this is the very eastern end of the Grand Canyon, where it makes that big 90-degree turn from going south to going west, close to where the Little Colorado River comes in. Then further to the northeast is this formation. And again, these were layers that were everywhere until they got washed away. So remnants of those 16,000 feet that were once over the Grand Canyon. Well, as the Rockies came up, that erosion then got directed in two directions, away from the Rockies. And us on the west side of the Rockies, basically, caused those waters that were heading east to now be turned around and head west. Like so. Okay, are we there? Okay, so the Rocky Mountains thrust up and diverted the waters that were heading east to go turn around and come west. Well, one other significant area where there's remnants of those layers that were once above the Grand Canyon is Monument Valley. And so here you see where the important stuff to see is what's not there, the stuff that's gone, the layers that are not still there. So these buttes, uh, the Thumb Butte, for example, there's, or the mittens, I'm sorry, the mittens they call them. There's the two pairs, the mittens, are the remnants of what used to be above the Grand Canyon. So this aerial view, you can see this channelized erosion. And these things are at least a 1,000 feet high. It's pretty impressive, isn't it? So all that stuff in between is gone. It went to the east when it was sheet erosion and then channelized erosion to the west, southwest. Now, here you're seeing this process where the arrows are pointing from east to west. So west is coming toward us and to the left. So that the water levels are coming down, but there are currents in the water And in certain areas, this Kaibab upwarp is being eroded more deeply in certain areas than others. So you can see that middle one is being eroded more than the one to the right, and even more so. So this is channelized erosion in the Kaibab upwarp. So this is going to allow for when the water is further down after the flood is over to be able to have water continue to come through here, and that's called a water gap because it's so far down. It matches the terrain around it where water can continually flow through, whereas to the right that didn't erode so far down when it was still underwater. And that's called a wind gap where the wind can come whistling through. But it's too high for water to come through. Okay, so this is how the route for the Colorado River was created so that it got through the Kaibab Upwarp. Taking into account channelized erosion in that last phase of the flood. So there's a old black and white photo showing the upwarp. <coughs> and this is the Grand Canyon itself, marble canyon, and the Grand Canyon itself. So here is where it came through the upwarp. Here was the upwarp, so here's where it came through the up warp, here. Here's Grand Canyon Village on the south rim, and it goes on. So this Grand Canyon was a result of the water channelized erosion coming through that water gap as the waters were coming through here and then eroding the Grand Canyon out. Yes. Are we good?
1: Okay. So, when you were talking about, like, in the Monument Valley example, like the remnants. So, do you mean, like, the mittens are geologically the same as what was covering, as as what was in the area that became the Grand Canyon?
0: Above the Grand Canyon. Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. You have it right. Yes, they caused the diversion of the water instead of continuing to go east, now to bounce back off the Rockies and come west. And then one
1: more question. The remnants that were flowing east that you showed the boulders and stuff, is there geological evidence of that?
0: Yeah, the boulder, yeah. There are these
1: Kansas how far did it go?
0: Well, on both sides of the Rocky Mountains, there are these deposits of boulders, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Good questions. All right. I
1: heard that they found boulders from the Grand Canyon
0: in Mexico. Is that true? Is that mis- well, not from within the Grand Canyon, stuff that was from above the Grand Canyon. Yeah, the Grand Canyon area. Yeah, from above. Eastward, towards the Gulf of Mexico, and then after the up thrust of the Rockies, westward.
1: Would the westward ones have potentially reached the coast, the boulders?
0: Um, I don't know about the coast, but I'm going to show you something else here. So here is this very wide canyon, averaging about 10 miles wide. At the widest, it's 18 miles wide. Uh, It's about 6,000 feet deep, more than a mile. And that little dinky river we call the Colorado is going to make this thing? No, it's the reverse. The river is the result of the canyon. The river is the result of the canyon. Now notice how sharp these features are and angular. Notice how there is minimal stuff at the bottom of the cliffs. Technical words are detritus. This isn't millions of years old. This is so sharp and angular. This is very young and very little stuff at the bottom of the cliffs. Okay, so there is the stuff that was above the Grand Canyon and the stuff that is now missing from the Grand Canyon, over 900 cubic miles. Some of the calculations are over 1,000 cubic miles of stuff that that is gone from where, from inside the canyon. Now, the question is, where did that stuff go? OK, so 6,000 feet deep, over 900, maybe over 1,000 cubic miles of stuff. Where did it go? Well, if it was the slow, gradual, uniformitarian evolution, evolutionary erosion, then there ought to be a huge deposit of stuff at the delta of the Colorado River. But guess what? It's a very dinky delta, very dinky delta. All this, the stuff that should be there if, if it was eroded over a long time isn't there. It's not there. Well, where is it? All right. So here we have the Little Colorado River coming up. The Colorado River making its 90 degree turn, heading west. And then now south. So here would be where that uh, Kaibab upwarp is located. So, where's all the stuff that came out of the canyon? The answer would be scattered all over this region here. So, what we have in this whole part of the country, and you guys see it here, is we have pretty steep sided, V shaped valleys that have these flat floors. Now, I I don't say level, but they're flat, tilted flat. How did those floors get to be so flat? That's the stuff that was in the canyon. These valleys actually would be much deeper if they weren't filled in by the stuff from the canyon, including where we are right now, okay? OK, so here is going to uh, Cool Spring Station, Kingman, Meconoco, and you see this very flat valley <coughs> filling in between the mountains. <coughs> Same thing when you're driving to the LA region, very flat valley filling in between these fairly steep-sided, steep-sided mountains. Okay, and it's the same thing in the Phoenix area, the Valley of the Sun. There's these steep-sided mountains and this very flat but tilted floor. As a kid, I grew up in the Phoenix area and I always wondered, not knowing anything about anything, I said, I wonder why this flat floor tilts to the south and to the west. Well, it's because the stuff washing off the Colorado Plateau filling in the valley. So this is the combined effect of sheet and channelized erosion, is this topography. So here you see uh, another map with showing location of some of the cities. Here it's just the physical map. But this is the southern edge of the Colorado Plateau. This is called the Basin and Range Province, where these mountains, with the basins filled in by the stuff that came from the northeast. So here is the boundary there of the Colorado Plateau, and that represents Kingman. Or actually not, it's actually chloride. So these are the Surbat Mountains, right? Do Anybody know why they got named Surbat Mountains? Looking at the name, it looks to me like it might be a Czech name, maybe the name of a Czech minor. I don't know. I couldn't find on the internet the answer to that. So that's the actual scientific evidence. Well, what's the evolutionary model for age? Going back to this business of uniformitarianism, they say that each tiny little individual layer is a year. Add up all these thousands of layers, it's thousands of years. That's their thinking, uniformitarianism. But we know that's not true because of what happened at Mount St. Helens in 1980 and 1982, showing that these zillions of thin layers got laid down at the same time. So we know that's not true, actual evidence. Well, we have these various layers of rocks uh, that we see at the Grand Canyon. And there's this place called the Great Unconformity, which means that there's hundreds of millions of years missing here, according to the evolutionists, how they interpret the rocks. Creationists would say these are these are creation week rocks down here and these are the first layers of the Flood sediment deposits Okay Billions of years of rock missing or hundreds of millions somewhere in there Okay up here there is this this called unconformity. Unconformity means missing layers in between. It doesn't conform. Missing layers in between. Missing time in between. We'll we'll take a close look at this one in a bit. Supposed tens of millions of years missing. Well, stratigraphy, okay, strata means layer, graph means writing, layer writing, is they say, they assume that the higher up, the younger it is. But that's not necessarily true because the layers aren't in the same order everywhere in the world. They come in a different order. Oops. So one of the ways to try to solve this issue is to say that in a particular layer of rock, and you see these lines connecting a particular layer of rock with a particular type of fossil, They say, if we find this kind of fossil in this layer of rock, then that's the same layer where that fossil is found anywhere else in the world. So it's called an index fossil, meaning this fossil means that this is the same layer of rock. Okay, that's what they say. Or they use, and or, they use radiometric dating saying that they can use the different radioactive elements like uranium or thorium or plutonium or uh, rubidium or strontium, argon, potassium, and get dates using that. That's a whole different talk. Well, what about the creation model? Okay, given that history from scripture, It's really quite simple compared to the complicated stuff the evolutionists try to give us. The week of creation, the 1,656 years to the Flood, the year of the Flood, and then the roughly 4,365 years since the Flood. So there again are those basic phases of the Flood, where it's the channel. the. Recessive parts divided into the sheet erosion and then the channelized erosion, and then what's happened after the flood. So there we are with our dates for these four time periods. So what's the evidence? Okay, how do you date rocks? Can you use the property of rock, chemical property or the appearance? The answer is no. Can you use the layers? And the answer is no, because they're not consistent. OK, and we said here that there are layers missing, supposedly, according to the evolutionists. So you can't use the layers. This is that unconformity with the 10 million missing years. You can, on the uh, Kaibab, I'm sorry, the Bright Angel Trail, the Bright Angel Trail just hiking down. I I took this without a zoom lens, okay, no zoom lens. You can get this close to it and you can see, you can't stick a razor blade between these layers. And they are perfectly flat and even for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles. There's no way that there's 10 million missing years there because there's no erosion between these layers. There was no time for erosion. One was laid down. Then the other one immediately afterward. Matter of fact, in some of the places, there's some places where they actually intertongue like this, where one had started laying down before the other one was finished. No missing time. And that was during the flood? This is all during the flood, the laying down of these layers. And there it is, from further away, uh, further along. Okay, very tight, no place for anything to happen. Then as you go to the west, more the western end of the Grand Canyon, there's a place called Lava Falls, where lava flowing downhill from volcanoes on the north side for a while blocked the the Colorado River. Then the river rose, breached that little local dam and then broke it down and formed Lava Falls. So here you can see a raft, and this is the following year in 95, we did the second half of the rafting trip from Phantom Ranch to Lake Mead, another week-long trip, and this was the most exciting day of the two weeks. We can see that's pretty, pretty rough water there. So that was a lot of fun, uh, rafting that, but it formed. Because as you see here, here's the Grand Canyon. And so from the part above the Grand Canyon north, the huge area of volcanic activity and a lot of lava flowing down there. Well, scientists took specimens from the lava from up above, took specimens from this stuff called diabase sill, a kind of rock down there, used radiometric dating, and it went, oops. The stuff on top dated older than the stuff on the bottom. Oh, that's not supposed to happen. Which shows that the radioactive dating methods don't work. Okay. So here's the pre-flood and then the flood. Okay, supposedly these kinds of ages showed up as opposed to these. So things, Things are just really goofy here. You got all sorts of different ages from the very same piece of rock using the different radioactive elements, just not consistent. So it doesn't work. So this one dated older than this one. Goofy. What about these index fossils? Well, here's what happens. In one place, you see this pattern. In a different place, you see that pattern. Oops. Different fossils, different order, layers of rock, different order. doesn't work. (coughs) So you ask the question, how old is this fossil? Oh, they say, well, we know it's 250 million years old because of the rock we find it in. Well, how do you know that rock is 250 million years old? Well, we know it's 250 million years old because of the fossil we find in it. (laughs) Circular reasoning, circular reasoning, like that. That's how that happens. doesn't work. It's no good. So the radiometric dating, here's the kind of machine that they use to measure the, the, the uh, mother and daughter elements. They ask you, when you submit the form, they ask you, what age are you looking for? That's so they can fudge things. <laughs> You laugh, sad, but true, okay? Expected age, there you are. Okay, so here is various parts, the Bass Rapids here. From the same rock sample, all these different dates gotten depending upon which element, from the very same piece of rock, okay? What does that tell you? It's useless no good no good so that's the scientific evidence so all these things they used to get old ages just don't work but he answered and said to them I tell you that if these should keep silent the stones would immediately cry out so this is Christ talking during the passion week well here's a boulder talking to us how is this boulder, which is huge and monstrous and who knows how many tons it weighs, how could that be moved if it's a little bit of water over a lot of time? <laughs> it has to be a lot of water and a little bit of time. How do these other places in the Grand Canyon get the rock layers bent without breaking if it's millions of years with dry rock? They have to be soggy and bent while still totally soggy. This is a famous photograph from a place called The Wave. It's a beautiful place. It's a very remote location, extremely easy to get lost in. There it is, The Wave. And uh, see that little dot right up there? It's just barely inside Arizona. You have to sign up way ahead of time to get it to get the guided tours that are mandated so you don't get lost. Okay, that's where it's located. So, Well, I should say the tours aren't mandated. Let's just say the guides are highly, highly recommended. With this you can try and go there on your own, but it's you have to be very good at navigation and survival skills. Okay, this is uh, part of the Colorado River. Prior to getting into the Grand Canyon proper, it's next to Marble Canyon. This is called Horseshoe Bend. Uh, you can. I took this picture. You can uh, walk right up to this spot. Uh, it's not too far from Payson, uh, not Payson, Page, from Page. And uh, there it is, Horseshoe Bend, right there. And there, uh, you see here off to the right, there is this region where you can hike to when you do a rafting trip for this part of the river, you can do a short one day trip. And what you see is what's called cross bedding. You see these lines in the rock like so. Cross bedding, which means that as the sand was laid down for a while, it was like this and then layers came like this and then layers like that. Cross bedding and there's a difference when that happens underwater versus when it happens in the air. So, there you see the actual lines. There's a close up there of the sand laid down in various angles. And when it happens in water, it happens in less than 30 degrees of angle. When it happens in in the air, it's it's greater than that. So you can differentiate whether this was laid down by wind in the desert or by underwater. So this shows that this stuff had to be underwater, had to be underwater, okay? Because the evolutionists try to tell us that this shows it was laid down by wind blown sand, but it's not the case. Here in Nautiloid Canyon, towards the, the very east and north part of the Grand Canyon is a side canyon that has millions of these and a seven-foot thick layer of sandstone like that. And you, And we actually walked to this side canyon on the rafting trip and took this picture. There's billions of these. And they all point the same direction. Why? Because the water was driving them in that direction to the northeast as they got buried catastrophically, billions of them at the same time. They didn't just randomly fall down and then get covered. Okay, we mentioned the great unconformity with hundreds of millions, maybe billions of years missing, supposedly. So there it is, right there, as they tell us, but we see this as the boundary between pre-flood and flood. Why? Because they willfully forget. They're ignoring the flood. Peter told us that was going to happen, ignoring the flood. Okay. So I think that evidence makes it pretty clear how things happened. So this is called schist. It's very hard, dense rock foundational pre-flood foundational rock and so where were you when I laid down the foundations of the earth tell me if you have understanding and Job so this is pre-flood rock in the inner gorge of the Grand Canyon well we see all this beautiful stuff and as we look at it we have to remember that this beauty is the result of judgment of sin that was the purpose of the flood to judge the sin. But yet, there is still great beauty in all of this with all these side canyons. Very interesting stuff.
1: Listening, friends, where will you be when you die? We ask this question of a lot of people oftentimes, and the biggest answer we'll get is I hope I will be in heaven. If hope is your answer, you don't know God, and this is a problem. We all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of the sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. If you do not know for sure that you're going to go into heaven, please, today, make your decision to follow him. It is simply just ask him, Lord, I am a sinner. Please come into my life and save me and make him your Lord. If you've said that prayer, let us know so that we can send you a new believers packet. You can contact us at